Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Andrew Harrison. We hope you're enjoying the podcasts. Remember, you can support us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon and get early ad-free versions of the podcast, plus very nice mugs and t-shirts as well. If you like, search Patreon Bunker Podcast or see our social media for more. Today, the economy is terrifying right now. The biggest recession since 1707 is supposedly on the cards. Government is propping up business in ways unseen outside of wartime, and we are bracing ourselves for unemployment that could make the early 1980s look like a mild blip. How are we going to get out of this? How can we pay off the massive debts incurred by lockdown? And what are the industries and sectors that might give us a very different working economy in future, and which are the ones that seem doomed? To help me with all of this, I'm joined by economist Dr. Gary Young, co-deputy director of the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, NISA to you and me. He rejoined NISA in 2017 after 17 years working on monetary policy and financial stability at the Bank of England. Hello, Gary. Thanks for joining us in the bunker. How are you? Very good. Thanks, Andrew. I'd just like to say that these are very difficult questions you've sent me today. I'm, I'm glad this is what we want, difficult questions. So you were 17 years from 2000 to 2017 at, at, at the Bank of England. Those are some pretty eventful years. You have financial crisis, austerity. Yeah, I mean, well, it started off very quietly, actually. I mean, the first few years were what we called the great moderation. Right. The financial crisis came along in 2007 and changed everything, really. So, I mean, setting aside politics, was Britain's economy on an even keel prior to COVID? Were the fundamentals fairly sound? Yeah, I think they were. I mean, we had full employment pretty much. Unemployment was about 4%. Um, yeah, there was a lot of uncertainty associated with Brexit, you know, which we've been talking about for a, for a long time. Um, but the, you know, the new government had come in and were planning to address, you know, some uh, sort of controversial whether they succeeded or not, but planning to address um, regional differences in the economy. And so, you know, I think it was a you know, it was quite a good position to be in. Mm. So what's the best analogy for a kind of thing out of left field like this, a sudden instantaneous global collapse? Is it, you know, we often hear people talk about the end of the Second World War, the 1920s Depression, or or is there some other case which is which best reflects what's happening to us now? Well, it's very difficult to think of anything which has been similar to this. I mean, you mentioned at the start the um, 1707 frost, um, which caused the economy to freeze up. And this yes. is, I suppose, you know, the economy is freezing up pretty much at the moment. But it's, you know, it's very different to anything we've seen most recently. You know, I would sort of characterise it as a managed recession in the sense that we've sort of deliberately shut down or locked down quite large parts of the economy to stop the coronavirus spreading. Um, so the economy is being used in a way as a sort of instrument to stop the virus. But it's not the sort of more normal type of recession where... The problem is one of lack of demand often, you know, where businesses can't sell what, they, what they're producing and then because of that they lay people off and because when they lay people off those people can't spend and you sort of get a vicious, vicious circle. You, you know, we're hoping it isn't going to be like that. 
I mean, one thing that what I dimly remember from my O-level economics is that pent-up demand when released can be inflationary. But that seems to be such, you know, the, the scale of this thing seems to be so huge that the idea that there's some kind of dam of demand that would break one day and put us into inflation again seems unlikely. Am I wrong to think that? Uh, I think I think you're right. I think it is unlikely. You know, it's not impossible mm-hmm. because you know there is a lot of um, a lot of stimulus has been thrown at the problem. So you know, we we see the the Bank of England, for example, um, has pushed interest rates down to the, the floor, 0.1 percent, and they're they're financing a lot of the the deficit at the moment. And it's possible, you know, that if the you know if the um, lockdown is lifted and the economy gets back recovers quite quickly, then that demand could be Un- unleashed and be inflationary in the f- in the future, but you know at the moment that, that seems relatively unlikely and not something to be too concerned about because if it started to happen, you could you know you've got the tools to do something about it when it happens. Yeah, it, it would be a great problem to have. I, sh- I, sh- I should imagine. Yeah, I think I think that's a, probably the right way of looking at it. So, what is the kind of the scale of the reconstructive challenge here? I mean, we are. I've been reading these terrifying figures about the seven percent contraction in the economy, uh, massive growth of, of unemployment. But what rate would the economy need to to grow to get us back to kind of twenty nineteen levels? And has it ever happened before? Well, I mean, it. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty. Say that first of all. But you know, we've constructed a forecast where. We do get back to 2019 levels at the end of um, next year. And the Bank of England um, has also produced a scenario like that. Now, there's no guarantee that either of these scenarios will come true, but um, you know, they are certainly possible. So, you know, you, in our forecast or in our sort of scenario that we've constructed, GDP falls by about, well, falls by 15% in the current quarter. Um, but then the economy starts to recover once the lockdown is eased, and that means that the GDP will be lower by about 7% in the year as a whole. And then next year, you know, because as the economy continues to recover, we'll have growth of 7%. So, you know, the way to think about it really is, you know, it's a bit like you you, you had, imagine that you had um, a level of activity of which was 100, and it fell down to 90, so that would mean a reduction of 10%. And then um, it goes back to 100. And then obviously you're going from 90 to 100, which is you know, slightly more than 10%. That's the sort yeah. of scenario that you know you can, you can imagine happening. Although, as I say, there's a lot of risk around it. Can you translate what that sort of growth would look like, you know, on, on the high street or in terms of employment or in terms, you know, in, in the real world? If, if you're looking at, because what we often hear abstract figures of, of you know, percentage growth and percentage contraction, what they obviously mean factories closing or opening they mean shops closing and opening in your projections what sectors are more likely to enable us to recover what's you know what is the, what is the business world likely to look like it look like if this happens well i think i mean i think what's in, in this scenario i think what's happening really is that it is really just a closing and an opening so mm. you know we've seen lots of sectors at the of the economy at the moment which are just not open you know pubs and restaurants and all that so you know their their activity goes from you know whatever it is to zero and then it recovers again so you, you'll be seeing you know on this particular scenario you'd be seeing that you know it's more like um in a sense it's more like uh you know, christmas you know when <laughs> everything when everything shuts down for for a while and then and then reopens you know it's that sort of position position of extended period 
Yeah, but of course, in Christmas we reopen to the January sales and everything's cheap, and it's kind of less of you know business well, makes yeah. all of its money in the in the in the course before Christmas, isn't it? So, I mean, obviously, I'm not I'm, I'm sort of overstretching your analogy there to to, to a no. ridiculous extent, but you know, the idea that you know a lot of people seem to be skeptical about the idea that once reopened, the economy will go back to normal because we've seen uh, we've already seen you know increases in, in unemployment and a, a, a collapse in confidence in your projections are you imagining that you know have you modeled behavior that people will be willing to get back spend go out eat drink buy stuff travel is yeah so, i mean i suppose the answer is that we, we're assuming that behavior hasn't changed and that that is you know it's a reasonable thing to challenge because you know it's possible that because of the crisis that people have been through that they will do things differently when uh, the lockdown is eased so, you yeah. know, we're assuming that, you know, that people will go back to restaurants and, and pubs and travel on the trains just exactly as they did before. But, you know, people may be suspicious of um, public transport, for example. So, you know, that you would you would see a change in the type of activity going on if, if there is behavioural change. You know, so maybe there'd be more more cycling, and, but that, um, you know, which would, would sound a very positive thing. But on the other hand, it may be more people sticking to their own cars, which which are probably negative. Yeah. So I want to get into this. I mean, you mentioned, you know, pubs and clubs and restaurants and, and, and cafes are the, are the thing that's because they're visible because they're on our streets and we see them shuttered and we see many of them with for sale signs outside to let signs outside, but beyond those sectors, such as hospitality, which is a huge employer and massively important often for, for low paid and, and, and vulnerable people, are there other areas of the economy that are especially vulnerable to what we're going through now? And that, and that, and that might not actually come back. Well, I think, I mean, there is, every, I think there is a lot of vulnerability. I mean, I think that, you, you know, having, a, I told you about a scenario, but that scenario was quite an optimistic one in the sense that everything comes back as it did before, where I think, you know, the risks are that um, that, that doesn't happen, you know, because there's a lot of, you know, even quite, you know, even very successful businesses are in a precarious state. And, you know, it, it may be that some businesses shut down and then you're, at the, you know, if you're on a, in a supply chain where your best customer shuts down, then it's going to be very difficult for you to um, continue. You know, so, you know, we've seen that companies like Virgin and British Airways are obviously very concerned about things. Um, there's other sectors, you know, where, where, where you know, again, there, there could be unexpected shuts down. And then, then because a lot of the economy is made up of this sort of network, that that can spread in a sort of unexpected way you know, unexpected way. You know, it is just that, yeah, you know, this we're not in a, an economy where people, you know, produce something or produce a service um, which they sell straight to, you know, consumers. Um, there's a lot of sort of people who are supplying other businesses. Mm. You know, they're not, you know, like business consultants, for example. You know, nobody wants to buy a business you know, no ordinary consumer wants to buy business consultancy. That's something that gets supplied to other businesses. So if those other businesses fail for whatever reason, then that makes consultancy more precarious. Um, so, you know, because of the sort of network that the economy consists of, you know, it's, it's often not clear where the problem would lie. And I, I think it's also true within businesses, you know, that, um, you know, a lot of big firms, you know, they may be doing, they may be selling one product, you know, say British Airways, you know, we all travel on, on those airplanes and stuff. But there's a huge sort of back office of people who sort of depend on on that 
on the airplanes, you know, be, being um, in, in the air. Yeah. You know, to be in another example of this, you know, football clubs. I mean, I, I just looked the other day at the number of employ, employees at Chelsea Football Club. There's about 2,000 of them. And, yeah. You know, they're obviously all dependent on, on the on the players do it, doing their job. And so, you know, there's this sort of, um, you, you know, I think the picture I want to present really is, is of, a, of a network where it's quite precarious really because, you know, there could be parts of that that go down and take the rest with them. I see what you mean. Chelsea, of course, have got a fabulously wealthy oligarch behind them. So let's not let's not weep too much for well, that. That's the lower league teams. That's what you need. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, you, you, you're right in that uh, – you know, we 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 do understand that the economy is a, is is a network, and we've all heard the you know the, the the analogies of you know when you're like me, old enough to remember the miners' strike, when a pit closes down, what that means for all of the supporting sectors around it. Uh, yeah. You know, absolutely, you know, it, it will devastate an area because it simply uh, slows economic activity in an area down to down to a crawl. Conversely, what sectors do you think are likely to recover fast? Which areas of economic activity, some of them may be manufacturing, which we, you know, t- tends not to be fashionable. We tend to think about knowledge and service, but, you know, which areas are most likely to come back and will, are they likely to leave us with a, a different economic landscape after we've been through this experience? Well, again, I mean, I think it just, it, it does really depend on how quickly we go back to a sort of normal situation. You know, a lot of businesses are opening now. And if, you know, if we're able to sort of reopen the economy without the, virus spreading and i imagine we would go back to a fairly similar situation that we're in before but on, on the other hand you know if the virus is still around and social distancing lasts for you know a, a year or two then um you know i think then then you you will see you know capitalism doing its job and people being inventive and producing things which um wouldn't have made sense before you know you know different types of um takeaway services you can imagine and you, you know all, all that sort of thing which, which again you know I, i'm not really able to anticipate but you know i just imagine that people would be imaginative in trying to supply what people want in a different environment so if the key determinant of the sort of business that's likely to recover is going to be is going to be social distancing, if businesses that require people to be on top of one another a lot, both customers and, and suppliers, mm. are going to be more vulnerable, naturally it leads you to the idea that I mean, we've all seen delivery services have, have, have boomed, video conferencing has boomed, we all live, you know, lots of us are living our lives on, on Zoom now. But many of those delivery services and many of those services where you don't have to be with or deal with people tend to uh be low wage services they tend to be delivery they tend to be drivers not low skilled but certainly low paid you know we got used to a full to to, high employment with the question mark of well exactly how much are people being paid here are the contracts worth having is this likely to do you think push us you know further down that road of differentiation between low-paid workers at a basic service level and, uh, uh, you know, highly-paid workers at the, in, the, in the knowledge level? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, pay, it would be very interesting to see how the trends in pay pan out because, you know, obviously if there is more demand for this sort of delivery-type workers that you were mentioning, um, yeah, as you say, not low-skilled but um, relatively low-paid, but at the same time there is still demand for high-skilled people, then you can imagine – that the pay of the of the low lower paid at the moment would go up because there's more demand for that sort of person. 
I mean, the, 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 but the sort of vulnerability of that is that, you know, if there is a problem in the high-skilled part of the economy, then a lot of those people would then be looking for jobs, um, you, you know, as well at the same time. So that would possibly drive all pay down a bit. Yeah. We haven't seen mass unemployment in the UK since the early 1980s and mm. i'm just about old enough to remember what it was like our welfare system since then has been based on the concept of job seekers the assumption that, that, that there are jobs out there and people need to be offered the route to them and in some cases encouraged to go there and in other cases you know more of a stick than a carrot is offered are we in any shape to cope with mass unemployment now that that model just doesn't work that the you know the the idea that there are loads of jobs out there waiting to be filled no longer seems to be the case well, I think I'd say two things, really. One is that, um, you know, in the 80s, I think people started to learn about how to get people back to work. Um, you know, and, and it took a long time to learn those lessons. But, you know, I think um, by about the middle of the 1990s, they had started to be learned in terms of, um, you know, make, making sure people stay attached to the labour market by, you know, going to the job centre regularly and looking, you know, making benefits depend partly on people searching for jobs, but also providing training to people. And so I think that's one that's one side of it, you know, how you can make people's job search more efficient. But I think the other side of it is if, it, if there just aren't jobs around, then I think it would be up to the state to start, um, you know, spending you know, spending more. So to have mm. a sort of what we would call a fiscal expansion so that that would create the jobs that... Um, that the private sector isn't creating. So I think, you know, the, the, the agenda of the government when it came in was, um, you know, the government was going to invest more. They were going to um, spend more on levelling up the economy. So I could imagine that, um, that that sort of policy could be accelerated. So rather than trying to do it over a long period, you know, you could, you could try and do it in a, in a short period if there's lots of resources available. Do you think we could end up in a scenario much like the American Works Project Authority or agency, was it? When, when essentially the government during the New Deal employed people to, you know, to to carry out grand expensive projects, largely to keep them employed, where it was a kind of a direct intervention into the labour market. We need to give people jobs, and what those jobs are are almost secondary. Yeah, but I mean, as I said, I think there are plenty of things that need doing anyway. So, mm-hmm. you know... Um, you know, there are, I mean, they, they should have already have been thinking about what um, levelling up meant and, you know, what, what extra um, infrastructure would be needed in the regions and so on. So I think there, there is certainly plenty of things that can be done. Um, and so I think it would just be a question of sort of accelerating some of that. Yeah, I mean, one of the issues we've seen, you know, through the crisis really is a lack of capacity in, in um, the hospitals and probably and also in, in care homes you know so there's definitely a need for more capacity there there's long-standing issues about roads um which need need improving you know there's, there's rail you know, there's a hs2 which um you know is is one of the, the sort of projects that they're, that they're going forward yeah so i'm sure there's, there's lots of things that, that could be done without having to sort of um, get people to dig holes and put money in yes well, I suppose all these things depend on, uh, you know, they're kind of, they're quite classical uh, approaches to what infrastructure is, aren't they? Yeah, they're I mean, I mean hopefully it wouldn't be necessary to do that. You know, yeah. hopefully, they're, they're, you know, things will come back 
relatively quickly. You know, that, that is a backup, really. But we may be looking at quite a different um, pattern of working and much more working from home. Um, you know, conversations we were reading over the past couple of days about, you know, more cycling, working closer to home, spending less time traveling, you know, get get out of the car, become less dependent on the car economy. It just makes me wonder what are the, what are the infrastructure, um, what are the infrastructure projects of the, yeah, yeah. of the future that don't entail, you know, widening the M1, for instance? Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, cycle lanes is, you know, is, is a good opportunity. I mean, the government has um, promised, I forget how much money it was, but um, mm. during the crisis to invest more in, in that. And yeah. I, you know, I think that would, be, that would be brilliant if they could do more of that sort of thing. So the government has added some £75 billion to the deficit with these support measures for the economy in the past few weeks. Prior to this, we were told that the deficit must be eliminated at all costs, that the deficit was was a, a major goal of, of uh, government uh, policy. Is thinking like that now in the past? I mean, do we uh, do we just like forget about the deficit or worry about it later? Well, I think, um, I mean, there is a sense in which you can worry about it later. I don't, I don't think there's any urgency to address it, you know, we have interest rates very well, pretty much zero. And, in, and I saw in the paper today that the, the two-year interest rate was now negative. So, you know, it's not like you you've got a a big um, interest rate to worry about. So you can let things roll over for quite a bit longer. Um, but I think you know the deficit is an issue, and and um, you know, I, I, there was a leaked um, Treasury report in the Daily Telegraph the other day, which got quite a lot of attention. Suggesting that the Treasury is now expecting a deficit of over 300 billion this year, which is you know, very large indeed, about 15% of national income. Um, and so that, that sort of amount of borrowing would take the national debt from about 80% of GDP closer to 100% of GDP. And that's the sort of level at which people start to get concerned. But as I say, I don't think there's any real urgency to, to address it. You know, I think the worst thing would be to try and um, bring in new taxes or, you know, to cut spending while the economy is still on its knees. And I think it'd be much better to get the economy up and running first and uh, get things repaired. And then you can start worrying about the deficit. Um, yeah, it's, it's you know, been massively politically controversial over the past sort of 10 to 15 years, particularly during the period of austerity where many, many commentators considered that the government did precisely the wrong thing uh, mm. in pursuing the deficit uh, and, and cutting public services at a time when perhaps the economic stuff needed to be turned on to get us out of the, the consequences of the 2008 financial yeah. crisis. Well, this stuff, I mean, to, it's to people like me, and I'm sure many of our listeners, this stuff is massively confusing because you're not entirely sure how a deficit actually is financed. And particularly when the entire world is suffering simultaneous economic downturn, you know, do, do, do you just finance it the same way you always did by issuing government bonds or, you know, what if nobody's buying? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is quite a lot of confusion about this, and and I think you know generally, um, yeah, if 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 the if we'd suffered this problem and nobody else had, then it would have been possible to to borrow from abroad to, um, to you know to to help. So you know, so yeah, we could continue to to go to a pub, but the pub would be in another country rather than in this country, and and you know, you'd be spending money overseas. But obviously, that's not a, not around this time. So I think, I mean. In, in our analysis, and I think this is um, this is probably true, the, the government is really at the moment is borrowing from people who are unable to spend in this country to pay income to people who are unable to work. So, I mean, that, that's how the, the borrowing 
is being financed. You know, the extra government borrowing is, is being financed by essentially people who are unable to spend lending that, not, not necessarily directly to the government, but indirectly through the by putting deposits in the banks, which are then sort of feed their way into the government borrowing. Right. What does a burden of debt do to the future of an economy in a, in a, a situation like ours where we really need demand to, to come back? Yeah, well, I, th- I think you know that there. Are, I think there are two things here. One, one is the sort of short term and the longer term. So I think in the, in the short term you've got to get demand back, and so you know if that means that the level of debt has to rise, then then so be it. But you know once the economy is at full employment and um, you know, demand and, and and you have a balanced economy, then you can start thinking about how to address the debt. And I think yeah, that's just going to take. I think you, we will need higher taxes. Than we would have otherwise have done to pay for it. So you know, I, you know, I think we just, yeah, I don't think there would necessarily be a sort of coronavirus tax, but there could be, you know, where you sort of say, um, this, this, this is, um, this is going particularly to pay off the debt that we ran up in in the crisis. I think generally, you know, you would probably have to have some higher taxes, and I think there's a sort of issue here that in any case we would probably be looking at higher taxes before the crisis because of an aging population and um yeah you know, that, that that needs to you know older people need to be looked after and you know obviously um there are a lot of older people around at the moment but but you know there's, there's a sort of pipeline of um aging going on which is going to take more taxation of of society generally mm. so i think you know we, we need to brace ourselves for for paying higher taxes i think right i quite like the idea of corona tax actually because it depoliticizes it it's like it's neither right nor left. It's just we need to pay a tax. Well, I think, I think that's right. I mean, generally, economists don't like these sorts of taxes where you're sort of labelling it and saying this is for that thing, and you know, because you you, you should really be, you know, spending on what's on what's most um, important, and then taxing in in the most efficient way of doing it. So, you, you, hmm. you know, generally, you don't you don't you don't um, do that. But I think in in this circumstance, it, I think it, it might make people understand a bit better what. You know, why they're having to pay higher taxes if it, if it was yeah. labelled in that way? Yeah, you know, there is. A, I mean, that communication I think is quite important. Well, it's like when you get a receipt in a pub in America, isn't it? You can see what the tax is. Yeah, exactly. go, Hang on, yeah. we should do that here. See how much the VAT is. I, idea for the yeah, Taxpayers Alliance there from yeah. America. Um, so a lot of economists and policymakers have talked about this crisis as a as a kind of a potential reset moment for governments to do things differently that, that you know we we have to use the fact that we've got a pause and an opportunity to think again mm. to rebuild the world economy in a, in a different way do you do you think that there is a kind of bipartisan impulse to move in that direction or are we looking at i mean obviously there are certain people who just want to reopen the economy as fast as possible get back to normal and try and pretend it all didn't happen but do you, do you feel that there is a an impulse out there to go for a bit of a reset well, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think I might be a bit more pessimistic than you about that in the sense that, um, you know, there are a lot of issues around which haven't really been properly addressed. You know, things like um, climate change, um, you know, in this country, um, levelling up of, of um, the regions. And then I think intergenerational fairness is another one where, where you know, people, where it has seemed recently a lot of, um, um, a lot of costs of Cost of running society has fallen on young rather than the old. So there are mm. these big issues, but I can just imagine you know, in the in the middle of the crisis, people are saying, "Oh, we mustn't waste a crisis. You know, we must deal with it. We must you know, have a brave new world afterwards." But then, when the crisis is over, 
I can just imagine people forgetting all that and going back to normal. Which is exactly what we did in 2008, and it led to (laughs) enormous lasting dissatisfaction. I mean, I I know what you mean, but I mean, we all know the fable of 1945. The world had been through an ordeal and didn't want to just go back to the way that it was. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, hopefully, I mean, this, this, this is obviously, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very serious crisis, but not on the same scale as the Second World War. So, you, you know, if it, if it, if it can be sort of defeated quite quickly, then I think, um, you know, we things would more likely to be forgotten. Yeah. I mean, just in closing, then you talked about the, the high possibility of higher taxes, the, the the kind of industries that may or may not come back. What do you think it's going to mean for sort of life on the ground for our, our listeners? What sort of, uh, you know, how, how will life feel differently over the next few years if we can't get right back to that business as usual, uh, you know, reopen in September, pretend it all didn't happen? And what's it going to mean for the housing market, travel, job opportunities and stuff like that? I'm hoping that, you know, some of the things you've, you've mentioned before about, you know, a change in attitude and so on, I, I, I would be hopeful that that would happen, but not convinced that it would. Um, you know, if people have got less money in their pocket, then I think you probably see less um, frivolous things purchased, and and you know there will be a need I think for for there to be better public services. I think that's one of the sort of lessons of the crisis that you know there, there was sort of a lack of investment in the NHS over a number of years, and um, you know we need to have more spare capacity in the world I think so that we you know if if anything bad does happen that we can respond to it. But in terms of the base you know housing market, you know people will need to live somewhere. You know, with interest rates as low as they are, you know, I think, um, you, you know, if they remain low, then I can see house prices not falling very much. Um, travel, you know, if we don't have to social distance, and I think people will be back in the planes before long as well. So um, probably not too much change if we go back um, to a world without social distancing. And if we can't do that, we can always transition to a sourdough-based economy. Yes, because that's it's where everybody's putting their time and effort. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I kind of have these sort of dim memories of, of you know the long st- stagnation in Japan where they had uh, you know low interest. Did they have low interest rates and very low um, yeah, yeah, yeah. activity and st- you know? Low no, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know that often you know these big recessions they have very long term long term drawn out consequences. Um, so really, our hope is that this will be quite a short, sharp one, and then we'll get back to some sort of normality. But you know, if that doesn't happen, there are certainly risks that things will be um, different and a lot worse. Well, Britain will always be able to depend on its booming podcast industry, so we're going to do our bit and see what we can do. Gary, thank you very much for joining us on the Bunker Daily. It's been, it's been fascinating, lots lots to chew on. I, I have a strong suspicion we'll be returning to these subjects over and over and over again. Well, yeah. thank you for joining us. Listeners, there's a full-length show every Wednesday and a Bunker Daily on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays. If you could leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts, that would be absolutely delightful. Better than the Today programme, says user Privacy78 who I guarantee does not work for us. Uh, And if you want to get the show early and without ads, search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to sign up. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Dr. Gary Young, and uh, we'll see you again soon. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. (laughs) 